rules can also be bug fixes. Um, Wait, we should mention psionics. Yeah, but I want to move forward. We're taking too long here. We spent 10 minutes talking about this. How are we in time? 40, 46. Okay, go. Live from the Mundangerous Ivy League in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 150 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how to handle new options in your game. But first the rogue traders make a mad dash in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the Death Shroud attacks from the darkness in the Character Creation Forge. Uh, so first up, we've got news on two new adventures that take characters all the way from level 1 to level 20. This is the first time that we've seen a 5th edition adventure path that goes all the way to 20, which is super exciting. It's also the first time we've seen one that only goes to 5. Super weird, right? So mm-hmm. the first one is Waterdeep Dragon Heist, which takes characters from level one to five it takes place in uh water deep in uh-huh. the forgotten realms go figure yep uh is the skullport show up i think it does all that underground stuff and that's where xanathar the beholder uh leader of a thieves guild mm-hmm. so i think i think he's gonna make a showing um and it's uh build as like a a book that you can run as a heist um, the, there's a lot of information for people who want to run heist games, even if you're not necessarily running this adventure path. And, you know, okay, the announcement came, and then people were like, yay, levels one through five, okay. Right. Fast on the heels of that, however, uh, Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage was announced, with, which goes from levels five through 20. Indeed. So this one is like a mega dungeon set in... Uh, was the the Undermountain? It, yeah, it's it's Halaster's Undermountain, which is which I'm actually hyped for because I always really liked it. Uh, if you don't know, Halaster's crazy. He's the eponymous Mad Mage, and he dug out a mountain, like the inside of a mountain. He just sort of scooped it out and was like, "I'm gonna make a dungeon with crazy stuff, and that will draw adventurers." And haha, sometimes they'll die. Uh, and so he like teleports random garbage and crap and animals and monsters in there. Uh, and then they're just sort of in there and they're like, great, now I guess we have to live here because we can't escape. And they build weird little societies and it's essentially an excuse for designers to be like, I want to make a crazy dungeon like back in the day and I don't really want to have to have a reason why it is like this. Speaking of designers, there is one name attached to this project uh, that means a little bit more to us than most. And what name is that? Uh, Mr. James Intracasso. Uh What did he have to do with any of this? Oh, he wrote it. I mean, probably not all of it, but he worked on it. His words grace these pages of these actual Watsy published D&D books. He probably wrote the good parts. That's what I'm going to go with. I mean, if I were him, that's what I would go with. You know, if we take a look at these and we start disparaging whatever DCs, I think I'll be like, James probably didn't write this part. No, no, this was definitely... uh... The other ones? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, so congratulations to James. James, of course, is uh, one of the um, uh, masterminds behind the Don't Split the Podcast Network um, podcast network and uh, is also a uh, prolific publisher on the DMs Guild and also runs the World Builder blog. He is also the writer of 
our musical review from episode 100. Yeah. That's him. Probably <laughs> that's how most of you actually know him right. is what I'm guessing. It clearly, uh, that songwriting cred has earned him all of the royalties. It is essentially his claim to fame, yes. Perfect. We can stop paying him now, right? I think so, yeah. He's got a real job. <laughs> uh, speaking of, I don't know, not having a real job, Shane, uh, you'll be making an appearance in uh, public soon, too. Yep. Yeah, at 9 a.m. on a Thursday morning. Mm, I will not be there. No. Uh, so I am part of a Gen Con panel at 9 a.m. on Thursday morning called Introduction to DMing for D&D. Uh, and it is hosted by Michael from the RPG Academy. And uh, along with um, Victoria from the Broadswords podcast, uh, I will be one of the panelists. See, I like the two of them. Mm-hmm. Mm, but have they listened to this show? Because I don't really understand why they're inviting you. Or really anyone from this show. Um, no other takers, obviously. Oh, right. Okay. Just, everyone else turned them down? It, well, someone got sick. You know, somebody had to return some videotapes. So, like, I was the only one who said yes. Did you sabotage someone so you could get on this show? I can neither confirm nor deny this. <laughs> Good. I'm proud of you. I've already forgotten their name. Okay. I would say do us proud, but I know you won't. Correct. Mm. So, if you would like to come watch me uh, flail about on stage uh, trying to explain how to DM uh, live without editing... Then you can come to Gen Con at 9 a.m. on Thursday morning. There uh, are, in fact, still tickets. There are. There are th- actually fewer tickets than I expected. There are 39 remaining out of 150 seats. So we're in actually one of the bigger uh, one of the bigger event spaces. So if I want to show up in Heckle, I need to grab a ticket very soon. You'd probably grab two. Oh, right. Because I'm very large? Uh, because you want a buffer between all of the angry fans. Oh, that's, that's true. All of our fans are angry. <laughs> <laughs> I want my money back. <laughs> Fair. Um, and also, if you would like to hear me and Michael on uh, on the same airwaves, uh, I was on Detention last week, hosted by the RPG Academy, which is a Twitch live stream um, that is also published on their feed, uh, on their podcast feed. All right. We uh, have also hit... Um, an auspicious milestone, I suppose. This is episode 149 episodes, huh? Uh, yeah, and I guess once this one's done, it's 150. <laughs> um, and so, of course, to ce- to celebrate, to commemorate 150 episodes, we are doing absolutely nothing special. Nope, no special topic, no special guest, absolutely no reason to continue listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, of course. Nobody cares about 150. We will be doing something for episode 156, which of course means three years. Three years of doing this, which I don't know if you're counting. That's six man years mm-hmm. between us. Yep. That's because there's two of us. Mm-hmm. And we're both currently men. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Once I was a boy. Yeah. I guess between us, we have, uh, what, 34 boy years? <laughs> yes. It's just not spent on this podcast. <laughs> Look, there's nothing saying I won't revert at some point. Yeah, there's nothing saying you became an adult at 18. Oh, yeah. Mm, it was probably more like 28. Yeah. To be fair. Okay. Um, speaking of terrible dreams, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Dead World Malage Act, the Rogue Traders and their two best companies of armsmen have located the Verzer House, 
an ancient obsidian fortress once occupied by the fallen dark angel Lord Cipher. Now occupied by us and many of our dead armsmen. Well, many of you and many of your dead armsmen, except for two pretty important people. Because the fortress was attacked, which you defended, and then it was attacked again, which you defended, um, and in the process uncovered a tunnel through which the attackers were uh, approaching, and tricks your seneschal and flare your astropath, got a little too excited on the bloodlust, and over-pursued them back down the tunnel, triggering a trap which collapsed the tunnel behind them and cut them off from the rest of the group. They got just a smidge hyped up on Eldar combat drugs and split the party. And the warp. I am... I was actually... Like, my character, Trank, was really happy that we found this tunnel because that meant that the people we were fighting were not incorporeal ghosts who just showed up, killed people, and then disappeared. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one nice thing. Yeah, they are, in fact, uh, horrid mutants who use tunnels to show up, kill people, and then disappear. Right. Mm. So, Flare and Trix, with no way to go back, decide to just continue down the tunnel, and eventually they emerge midway across the valley. Um... They, you know, have a brief skirmish with some ambushers there, look to their right, see the Verza house several hundred meters away, uh, look to the left, see a mounting army of hostiles charging forward to overrun the fortress. So they figure their only shot is to outrun them and scale the cliff in order to get to the casements, because... We know by now that people can get in via the casements if you can get on top of the fortress. Yeah, and there's no way that they're going to get to the gatehouse where you could open the gates, let them in, and then reseal the gates before, like, the crash of attackers hits it. Like, that's not going to work. So they come up with a plan. Uh, A very hasty, probably ill-conceived plan, but a plan nonetheless. Trix decides... He's the strong one, Flair's the weak one, so he will pick up the astropath and carry him at a dead sprint towards the Verza house uh, amidst a hail of pulse fire. Now, Trix, fa- Trix is fast. He is, however, not uh, pulse fireproof, neither his clothes or his armor. So he takes quite a few hits. Bravely, I will admit this, bravely making that mad dash. Mm-hmm. And of course, that means he succeeds, yes? Uh, yeah, I mean, he makes it to the base of the cliff. Ish. He succeeds ish. <laughs> uh, when he gets there, he is, of course, struck down into a uh, a terrible charred husk. Um, but Flair has one last trick up his sleeve. He uh, reaches deep into the psychic strength of the warp and infuses it into his iron arms. And uh, with, <laughs> with the Seneschal in one hand and the power of the warp in the other he free climbs the cliff uh, up to the casements to the safety of the verse house yeah it's less him uh, being a good climber and more him taking his arm which is now literally made of iron and mm-hmm. jamming it directly into the rock face right and then just hauling both of them up which of course begs the question why didn't he just do this in the first place uh well <laughs> there is a reason for that <laughs> um because he doesn't improve his uh agility which affects his speed <laughs> uh oh right because so it, it gave him makes strength him... and toughness <laughs> he's, uh, but he's made of iron <laughs> right so he's made of iron but he's not very <laughs> agile and that would would not make him any faster so they covered the fast part with the fast guy and the uh strong part with the strong guy yeah Power gamers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so anyway, so they do make it into the casements, and 
um, are able to kind of assess the Seneschal tricks. He is permanently blinded, disfigured by grisly burn scars, and quite literally dying. And there is only one Medicaid within 100 kilometers who can save him. Doc, our heretic, who should never be allowed to touch anybody. Uh, Who, in fact, all of you have withdrawn your medical consent from. (laughs) I signed a paper. In the grim, dark future, there is only paperwork. (laughs) There's only bureaucracy. (laughs) Yeah, you have all told him not to do anything to help you (laughs) because you do not trust him. Um, And as the final sort of furious assault descends upon the fortress and its beleaguered inhabitants, Trix musters one last command. He says, get me back out there, Doc. I don't care what it takes. Famous last words. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we're talking about power creep in game design. Shane... What the heck is power creep? So power creep is what happens when options that become available later in the life cycle of a game are more powerful than the options that came in earlier uh, supplements or books. Uh, This sounds a little bit familiar. I doubt it. (laughs) But I I suppose if you binged the last 58 episodes, (laughs) you may recognize that we talked a little bit about this in episode 92 when we talked about power creep in uh, character options. Uh, Yes, so we split these up because talking about power creep as a a whole is too much for one episode. And I think we learned our lesson back in episode four when we were like, oh, yeah, we'll cover magic and magic items. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, those sweet summer children. Mm. I didn't think we'd ever get to 150 episodes. That's a good point. All right. So there are many reasons that power creep might occur. The first is that it could just be that the people who are making your game have decided to intentionally boost the power of the options that they're presenting. Now, if you think about this, uh, when designers make a game, they're usually, I mean, if they're good designers, they're usually erring on the side of caution when it comes to power levels, right? Like you present the, the player's handbook or, you know, the first book available in a game that actually presents the rules. Uh, The options that are typically available when a game debuts are going to be considered by the players to be the the standard, the steady state. And but then as people play, you know, no matter how much playtesting you're doing, there's not necessarily a way to to iron out all the kinks. As people play, it turns out that some some options end up stronger than others. And in some cases, it could be that they they end up like quite a bit weaker than the designers had initially intended. So one thing they do is, is just sort of sort of boost them a little bit when uh, additional books come out. That's smart because it is a lot more fun to add power later than to sort of come back with errata uh, and nerf the abilities that players have already gotten used to. So, you know, it, it's good that they're doing this. Mm, more cynically, it's a great way to sell books to people who care about having the more powerful characters. Oh, how dare you! Hey, how how dare you? I played through 3.5. <laughs> All the way through? <laughs> Absolutely not. Look, a more cynical person might say that if you just put one very powerful option inside a 150-page book, then you can fill the rest with whatever you want, hot garbage, and people will still buy this book because they want that one very good option. Yep, people definitely won't pirate that book. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about 
I think there is also a, a real case to be made that it does keep players more interested when the newer options are stronger, right? It avoids kind of staleness and boredom in the system, um, keeps players excited to continue playing, continue trying out new things, see the system evolve. Yeah, it's kind of a give the people what they want scenario, even if it's not necessarily good for them or their table. Then there are some unintentional things too. Interactions between new rules and old rules might create for unintended consequences, right? Or perhaps intended consequences. But the idea is that like this new subsystem or this new like set of things interacts with a with a previous set of rules in a way that makes it more powerful than it maybe is is initially presented in the book. So this is where you get all of those, uh, like the Diplomancer from third edition, or the uh, was it the the one mile uh, meteor that move? Uh, are you thinking of the locate city bomb? The locate city bomb, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is essentially um, I take one small, relatively inauspicious uh, ability in one book, uh, chain it together with another book, chain it together with four or five options in other books and then suddenly we have a ridiculous combo and then if you think back to fourth edition you also have just straight up fixes to problems right recognition from game designers that there was a flaw um that that is bigger than simple errata and a uh, an attempt to correct for that yeah like you said this was particularly obvious in fourth edition DD. like remember later when uh, we got those feats that just gave you like plus one, two, or three to all your attacks with a particular kind of weapon. That was because the math of the game was fundamentally flawed in the first place. Uh, as you got higher level, it actually became less likely that you would land your attacks. Yeah. Um, rather than actually going back and making errata to the book, which probably most people would never have seen, they introduced new options, which were technically power creep. If you took them, you were stronger. Right. So why does power creep have a bad reputation? Because the people who uh, are happy about it are bad people. <laughs> I mean, that seems like simple and true. us? <laughs> so the term is usually used disparagingly uh, by people who want to dismiss these new options that are breaking the expected power level that was already set by the previous content, whether or not that level is appropriate for the games. And if you think about it, the people who are going to notice or seek out these new options the fastest are more likely to be people who are either power gamers um, or casual gamers who are less concerned with the um, flow of the game or less uh, invested in the personality of their character and don't have a problem with sort of jettisoning their old character or their old build or you know their old gear and being and just taking the new stuff like this is the kind of player where okay a new book comes out uh, i'd like to play that class instead great uh the next time we meet a dragon i charge it hoping that i will die so that i can roll a new character that is more powerful yeah and of course the reward for this behavior that we generally don't want to encourage is access to a more powerful character that has more control over the narrative or more survivability or more access to the spotlight this doesn't have to happen but traditionally it happened a lot mm -hmm. and like you mentioned before some people just really see it as a money grab uh does this happen in warhammer i don't know i don't play the tabletop but you have uh yes <laughs> uh, oh. 
If you want to know what race you should be buying, just look at what codex is the next to be released because that army will almost certainly be the strongest in the meta that is upcoming. Oh, that makes sense. I guess it also happens in Magic the Gathering, yeah? Like new cards, you get a new expansion. Oh, yeah. I've played in years and years. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just got to hop on that hamster wheel. Keep on running. I mean, D&D, because it's so big, is is always the most obvious example, but this happened in both 3rd edition and 4th edition with just the glut of supplements that were released. Yeah, you can pretty much guarantee that people are going to buy it. And even if they're not power gamers, um, after a while you have to pay to play. Uh, at least if you're not, if, if your experiences are happening occasionally outside of one small table where everything can be regulated. Yeah, and this is this is going to be, of course, like most prevalent at tables like Adventures League or Pathfinder Society, where you know the intent of those games is to make all the published content uh, available to all players. Well, now you run into this problem of like literally pay to win, right? Yeah, and the intent is also that uh, you're supposed to have objective GMs who are running these games who are not making house rules or nerfing particular things because they feel like they're unbalanced. Right. So you've kind of got to play it rules as written, and often rules as written means that you get this video game aspect where you have these particular builds or particular items that pretty much everyone's using because those are literally the best. Right, and you're a fool if you don't take those at at any given choice. Okay, so I guess Adventurers League aside, um, how do you deal with these situations when they crop up at your personal table? Now, as a rule of thumb, we typically advocate just letting people have their fun as long as it's not being disruptive. So yeah, if someone uh, chooses an option that is more powerful than what they were before, but no one else seems to mind, and they're not um, breaking the social contract at the table, just go with it. You know, great. Their par- their character got more powerful. Happens in stories all the time. Right. Uh, and fortunately, this is uh, this is a scenario where it's a little bit different from power creep in um, character creation or character options. Uh, when you're talking about game design, the ways that you end up with ca- power creep are often things like new gear, right? So a new book comes out and it has new kinds of equipment in it, uh, new guns with like uh, different fire rates, uh, which is basically what I'm always looking at in uh, Dark Heresy. Uh, yeah games okay. is okay where's the armory right <laughs> uh, but in a situation like that every character at the table has access to that new armory and those new weapons or, or those new that new armor mm, maybe well typically right i mean we, there are definitely scenarios where if you have a book where okay it turns out there are nine great new power malls yes that's not going to be uh much better for people and i think in dark heresy you get the situation with uh weapons that enhance your psi rating right like there's so many weapons that are really good for psychers whereas like the melee using character who's not a psyker is kind of like the animus hammer doesn't really help me right likewise you know there's no new flamers if you're uh if you're not planning on using ballistic skill. Yeah, it is actually really tough to find good flamers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe um, it's just because we keep wanting to build a fire build. Right. Um, the same thing happens in D&D, by the way. Um, you know, based on simple and martial weapons and also, like, the um, the themes around certain items can just simply work better for certain classes or or like fit um a little more logically for a given class than another um it can subtly affect the balance yeah but um in general those 
types of additional options, whether it's new gear or it's some sort of rules clarification, applies across the board to all the PCs. So in an ideal world, it means that everyone has access, everyone is being affected more or less equally. And then it is up to the GM or players at the table to determine if there are edge cases or particular uh, kinds of characters that are going to be affected much more than others. So there is one one other piece of this when it's not rules clarifications, but it's introducing new subsystems, which isn't as prevalent in D&D. Um, the like, I guess crafting is a subsystem that got introduced after the fact. Yeah. Sorry, what? Uh, right. But um, but there are plenty of games, and and the like Star Wars FFG line is is a great example of it, where new subsystems are introduced to handle like different types of encounters or different types of like game scenarios or story scenarios that um, the game wants to promote for players to experience. Those are not always created equally for all you know extant characters or classes, so it's very possible that like hey, these new combat, like uh, vehicle combat rules, like might really reward a, a couple classes that might not even necessarily be the pilot unexpectedly, right? Um, and you have that kind of creep that through no intentional design, um, but just through new rules that got added onto the game, like your character has suddenly gained new access to the spotlight. Yeah, totally. This happens a lot with um, a lot of different games in, include a or eventually have a book on vehicles. I mean, especially like something like Star Wars or anything taking place in space. You'll almost always get the book for pilots, which has, one, a bunch of new gear in the form of ships, but then also usually has um, some new abilities. And now, ostensibly, hey, anyone can fly a ship, right? But Because this is Star Wars. But if you're a low-dexterity character, you're never going to. Right. So those ships don't really help you shine at all. It's just another place that you're going to sleep. Right. So the net effect of all of this is that system mastery becomes more important to understand the ways in which PCs can you know, be affected in terms of how they can shape the narrative, how they can share the spotlight, how they can uh, influence combat. Yeah, one of the things that happens very often, especially in fantasy games, is you'll get new spells. Sometimes you'll get an entire spell compendium. This entire book is just new spells. Okay, so technically, uh, these are all available to all the different spellcasting classes. Well, okay, a bunch of classes cast no spells, so it doesn't help them at all. Uh, and then they're always typically broken down by spell list or discipline or something like that, where some are just much better and certain kinds of spellcasters are left feeling like they didn't really get anything. Uh, in D&D, it's usually like the ranger or the druid. It's like, oh, yeah, the nature spells are meh. You know, you can't really do that much. Bob, at evocation, we do like it when uh, things explode. So right. wizards and sorcerers, you guys are great. Yeah, wizards and sorcerers seem to get blastier the longer editions last. Totally. The one time I have seen this trope subverted was when Elemental Evil came out. Uh, in fifth edition and every single one of these those spells was available to the druid to the point that they had to put a a footnote that said you might want to limit some of these spells so your druid doesn't get you know 84 new spells yeah Um, another piece of the system that will often be upgraded in later books are the bestiary enemies as the designers have more and more feedback on their game as more player options are introduced um, a lot of times they end up scaling up enemies in later books 
to match the actual play experience at the table for the average player. That includes like maybe other player options that have scaled up power level, but could just be feedback from the player base or whatever. Anyway, if you're using base core, you know, uh, PHB characters and you're using monster manual for monsters, you could see the math shift pretty dramatically in terms of the difficulty. Mm-hmm. Now, ideally that is affecting your whole party all at once, which hopefully is making it easier to balance. Um, but you are going to want to take notice of who ends up having a more difficult time. Um, is it the melee characters because they fixed AC? Uh, or did they fix saving throws and now your spellcasters are having a much more difficult time actually landing their spell effects? Or is it HP and oh god, this is now taking forever? Yeah. Uh, having new enemies also introduces uh, additional variety into certain subsystems. So in DD, for example, if a lot of those enemies are beasts, then the druid can now wild shape into them once you actually throw them at them. <laughs> yeah, consistently the most frustrating part of 5th edition has been the beasts included in each new uh, entry in the bestiary just to give druids more options or I suppose summoners yeah summoners too Um, which actually it's not just beasts for them right Uh, I think one of the notes that we made about Morden Kane and Storm of Foes is eh, these these demons are like whatever you know there's not that much variety to them and I don't know that they really give you options as a GM but the elementals right and also, your summoner is going to want to look through this because if they can summon these demons, they have a lot more uh, mechanical options, right? Because you're limited to a particular challenge rating. Right. Uh, or in a totally different kind of system, um, new enemies, new animals means that, you know, if you're a hunter, there are different parts you can harvest, um, ivory, uh, scales, you can uh, make new kinds of weapons and things like that. All different kinds of uh, exotic ingredients you could use. Another thing that often commonly gets clarified in later books is additional uses for skills, which again, is just like you picked your skills for some reason at the beginning, right? But now you suddenly have more codified powers that your skills enable you to use. Um, Sometimes problematically, not always the way the GM has interpreted the skills at your table. Yeah. So now does that shift who is the one who's technically best at that skill at the table? And and that's something that we haven't touched on yet is, you know, dealing with this breaks down into sort of two varieties, like the, the problem of introducing or having these new options. One is, you know, are they too powerful mechanically? Um, but the other is, how do you introduce them into the story without breaking verisimilitude? And for for game design options often it will be a little bit easier than say like an entire new subclass because you know a new subclass either involves a totally new character or some sort of like deus ex machina redesign a la you uh, got lost in a portal for a few days and then showed up with a new build i don't know what you're talking about that has never happened at our table i agree that has definitely never happened uh, but if, for example, you know, there's there's a rules change that is sort of like happening in a blanket way, that's something that can just kind of be hand-waved. You know, from now on, this is how it works. And in fact, this is how it has always worked. And no one even really needs to notice it within the story. Or, you know, hey, a bunch of new ships are available. Great. Um, you buy a new ship. 
you know, it fits perfectly easily into the story. It's not difficult to to introduce that or to like conjure some way that this becomes available. Right. And then on the more heavy handed side, right? Like if you kill enemies and expect loot, well, the GM determines what the loot is. So you may introduce certain new items into that loot table or you may leave them out entirely. Yeah, I would say as a matter of course, um, hypothetically, you get a new book and that book has a big armory in it or a bunch of new items or whatever, right? Um, Don't just hand it to your players and say, pick whatever you want. These are also now available too at the shop. Dole them out a piece at a time, you know? Uh, One here, one there. It's sort of nice. Like typically these will be thematic, right? Um, Dark Heresy split it up by, you know, Xenos artifacts. And then in a different book, it's things you use to combat uh, demons in the warp because they're thematically tied together, you'll probably find them in the same places uh, within the setting, right? So you can have your party discover them as they're exploring rather than having to stock all your shelves with them. Right. Yeah, and uh, Star Wars kind of did the same thing, right? Like um, Age of Rebellion has more military-style weapons, whereas like Edge of the Empire has some of the more exotic um, sort of... (laughs) Uh, smugglery, yeah. scoundrelly kind of <laughs> underhanded weapons and um, obviously Force and Destiny has more of the Jedi or Force sensitive sort of enabled weapons. And fortunately Star Wars always has single biome planets so yeah, <laughs> good point. <laughs> if you just bought uh, Stormrack then maybe they go to Mon Calamari. <laughs> right. <laughs> now we want to make clear that power creep is not always necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it's actually very helpful and good for your game. I would argue Power Creep is what keeps me interested in buying new books. <laughs> like, if if the game is not moving forward, it is stagnating, is my point of view. Like a shark. Yeah, I, I just, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a question of scale, in, as in all things, right? Like, a slow and steady Power Creep is good. A rapid and spiking Power Creep, a la 3rd edition, is miserable yeah or a lopsided power creep right yeah so let's talk about why it's good right um the first one and and the one that most certainly applies to us is it's uh new tricks for old dogs so we gain new tool options we gain downtime rules in xanathar's guide to everything you know we gain new monsters that we can face and and um structure our encounters or our campaigns around and um volo's guide and in um Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes, like those are the things that like give us excitement because it's new stuff. Yeah, and I'd say this is probably, if not like my favorite way to creep in power, um, it's certainly one of because it doesn't require you to actually get new stuff. You don't need to rebuild. You don't need to retcon. Um, you don't need to buy anything new. Here's the stuff I already had, and now there's just new, more interesting ways to use it, or more interesting things to use it against. Yeah, it's a feature that you already had, you are, were already used to, and you just get this small power boost. Like, I, you know, the example I always use is in Xanathar's, there's the tool options. Um, great, I had Cobbler's Tools before. That was totally like a, a ribbon flavor ability. It didn't do anything because why in the heck does a D&D character need to know how to use Cobbler's Tools? Yeah. But now you can make 1d4 gold pieces per week, (laughs) (laughs) which begs the question, what in the hell does a D&D character need cobbler's tools for? But now instead of marching for eight hours a day with proper maintenance of footwear, you can march 
10 hours per day. <laughs> does that usually matter? No. But does it feel awesome that I can do that? Oh, totally. Right. Because I RP'd and said I was taking cobbler's tools rather than a language. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for that one moment where the DM says, yeah, you're uh, you're nine hours away, so you're going to have to rest before you get there. And you go, oh, no, sir. I am a cobbler. I am the son of a cobbler <laughs> who is the son of a cobbler. <laughs> we march 10 hours on these toasts. I won't die here. I need to have a child who will be a cobbler. <laughs> right. And these are usually things that are sort of small enough that they can become role-playing hooks, as we've just demonstrated. <laughs> Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, and likewise, it, it gives you you know more ways to explore the features that you already had on your character sheet, right? So new uses for things that maybe you didn't find a way to highlight, or um, you know a, a more greater variety to use the things that you've already been leaning into. Yeah, I like you know new skill uses are always great. Um, it's like it's like money for nothing, you know. Wait, I can use Arcana now to identify spells. Awesome. Money for nothing and your scries for free. <laughs> for some reason, we were using medicine. I don't know why, but you're the GM. <laughs> we also like power creep because it introduces new rules and new subsystems, uh, like new sections of the game world or game system to explore and dig into and tear apart and complain about and master. Yeah, so um, the first Waterdeep book coming up for 5th edition is supposed to introduce not necessarily items uh, and maybe not even necessarily specific rules, but it'll be a bunch of information on running heists, which is going to make it easier and, and ideally, hopefully, more fun to run those kinds of games, which should add some new variety to your relatively generic fantasy-type campaign. Yeah, in, uh, in Rogue Trader, for example, the core book has nothing about generating new planets, but when... Uh, you guys went to a new planet that had as yet been unvisited and uncatalogued. Uh, we went through the planet creation rules in Stars of Iniquity, which is a supplement for Rogue Trader. So we got to use those when they were relevant. They were. It was fun to find out that every world is a death world if you're a Rogue Trader. Yes, it was so much fun. You know, and if we'd had official rules, maybe, just maybe, there would have been an option for not creating a death world. Hold on. Those were official rules. Just not in our game. In Rogue Trader. You, you creeped the power, and that is good. I liked it. <laughs> You're just mad because you thought you created a cool world full of exploitable Xenos uh, creatures, and those creatures exploited back. Yes. We totally created a cool world full of exploitable Xenos creatures. <laughs> we just also got more than we bargained for. Uh, well, We're a, such good bargainers so, that we just got extra. <laughs> Well played. <laughs> you um, get an apex predator, and you get an apex predator. <laughs> Please, I don't. I can't afford the taxes on these apex predators. Uh, Dark Heresy Second Edition, the the actual rule set we are using, introduced rules for inquests in a supplement, um, which is sort of you know, as the Inquisition, how do you carry out the um, pursuit of a potential heretic? It also introduced rules for exercising demons from. Uh, people from demon hosts from uh weapons all those types of things and you might be asking like okay but how is this power creep but the rules that we were given presented new ways that the characters that we already had could act new kinds of actions that they could do new 
uses for the um, skills that they were already trained in, you know? Um, yeah, okay, uh, I created a character who's good at, you know, lying um, because their background is a smuggler, but turns out now they're an excellent barrister. Right. You know, if you don't have influence, it turns out it's difficult to um, get your inquests launched. And my character who's built around surviving at all costs, pretty good at actually surviving an exorcism. <laughs> so there's that. Go figure. <laughs> uh, your favorite game, Eclipse Phase, introduced Life Path character creation, which is not a concept unique to Eclipse Phase, but was certain, certainly like an expansion of Eclipse Phase that we enjoy at our table. Oh, especially because that meant that you didn't necessarily have to spend three weeks creating a character you could just roll them up right uh and now this was a an example when it didn't necessarily mean that you were going to get a more powerful character you could actually have gotten a character that was much weaker because it was pretty random however you could definitely have ended up with a character that was quite a bit more powerful than if you had built them step by step and you know what it was fun but not in any way balanced right Sometimes you will get rulings that aren't even necessarily in a book that you need to buy, but it'll make most characters that much stronger. I'm thinking, of course, of 5th edition Sage Advice, where designer Jeremy Crawford sort of makes pronouncements about the rules. Such as? (laughs) (laughs) When he decided that passive perception is a floor. Oh, yeah, that was a fun one. Uh, you know, so every character in fifth edition has a uh, passive perception score, which is your uh, perception modifier plus 10. Um, and he announced that, and when you're making a perception check, in fact, if you roll lower than your passive perception, basically, if you roll lower than average, you then get your passive perception. You're never going to get uh, perception uh, results lower than your passive perception, which basically gave everybody reliable talent for perception which made literally everybody stronger yeah unless you happen to have taken perception as your reliable talent oh yeah and then ghost crew so when power creep represents bug fixes uh then it's great right adding rules for how to make spell scrolls for example makes most characters stronger but it fills a hole in the game um the ability to bless holy water turns out makes you stronger against vampires but is pretty important to fighting vampires also the book told you that you could make it and then like made it really difficult to find the rules on how you're actually supposed to do it and then made it really difficult to do Mm -hmm. and then of course there's just straight up errata yep we printed this incorrectly or confusingly and now we have to um admit our mistake and clarify it for everybody right you have 111 hp not 11 (laughs) our creep we're we're typo (laughs) all right so in conclusion I think in general, when you're presented with options that are more powerful than the ones you had before, look at it, both as a GM and as a player, look at it as an opportunity to introduce something interesting into your game, whether that is going to affect the story or whether your characters themselves are just going to be more effective and therefore maybe just more badass. Yeah, or whether that is uh, an excuse to revisit an old game, um, maybe, you know, revisit old characters, something like that. Like, use the life cycle of a game uh, to make your gaming life more fun. All right, do you hear that, Ishan? I wish I could, but I have a feeling something's creeping up on us. 
Well, let's move on to the Character Creation Forge and see what it is. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Zen's Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the Death Shroud. You know, originally this was just called the Power Creeper. Yeah. I like this name better. Okay. Because we built it and then it was like, oh, it does a thing and I like it. All right. So given that origin <laughs> for this build, <laughs> uh, wh- wh- where did this come from? So 5e as a game is relatively balanced, but of course some classes are better or stronger than others. So we've gotten some new subclasses, and sometimes they offer options that are much more powerful than previous ones, or they shore up some weaknesses. Uh, I think the so, sort of m- one of the more obvious ones is Monk. Um, the Order of the Long Death is so very strong, especially compared to something like uh, the Order of the Five Elements. Well, like every monk is better than Order of the Five Elements. <laughs> yeah, and then Monk of the Long Death at level 11 is just straight up better than every other monk. Right. But, you know, these weak classes, uh, they've done a pretty good job of giving them stronger updates, particularly in Xanathar's. And two of them that were not very good in the PHB were the Ranger and the Pact of the Blade Warlock, both of which got new options in Xanathar's. And we're using those. All right. So you've uh, teased it. What's the build? Gloomstalker Ranger 5, Hexblade, Pact of the Blade Warlock 15. All right, so Ranger gets us the low-level Ranger uh, goodies, the favorite enemy, fighting style, exploration uh, pillar abilities. Then at fifth level, we get extra attack. We'll have second-level spells. And uh, one of your favorite spells, I know, Pass Without Trace. Yeah, it's one of the few ways to actually get this on a character. I think there's like three ways. And a Gloomstalker Ranger gets a rope trick. And pretty sure this is the only way to get that as a non-wizard or i guess a non-bard but what bard takes rope trick yeah well rope trick is one of the most fun spells in the game oh totally <laughs> like it is a it's an escape it's a it's an ambush it's a uh it's just a it's a barrel of fun and i think we didn't actually touch on the point of this uh, like build in play is nobody sees you Right, you're always hidden. <laughs> yeah, you disappear and if you really need to disappear you can be in a different dimension. Right. <laughs> Uh, Gloomstalker gives you that enhanced dark vision, so it adds 30 feet if you've already got dark vision. Highly recommend choosing something that's already got dark vision. It also makes you invisible to creatures who have dark vision when you're in darkness. Which is a level of stealth that is not available to any other character. Right. You'll also get wisdom to initiative and an additional attack on the first round of combat. So from Warlock, we've got 15 levels, so we're going to get quite a bit more. But the Hexblade... Um, is basically the patch to the Pact of the Blade Warlock. It gives you a true Gish Warlock that can actually um, hold its own in combat. Yeah, charisma to your attack and your damage. You get the increased crit range. You've got access to amazing spells like Shield or Blur. At level 10, you get Armor of Hexes, which imposes a 50% mischance on the target of your Hexblade's curse. And at 14, you can move that curse on around, so you're pretty much going to have that 50% mischance all the time. So in terms of invocations, um, Eldritch Smite is, of course, your bread and butter as a Hexblade. Um, You'll also want to pick up Improved Packed Weapon to just um, 
add as much to your uh, attack bonus as you can. Since you'll often be in darkness or conjuring darkness, um, Devil Sight is really great for you, so you can actually still see. Uh, and I believe Devil Sight is not dark vision, so it'll actually allow you to see other gloom stalkers. Oh, I, that's handy. I, I believe. Nice, nice read. Thank you. Some nice options are the at will disguise self and the at will levitate. Sometimes the best way to hide is to just be where people don't expect you to be, which is often, you know, on the ceiling. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then as a capstone at level 20 and warlock 15 is invisibility at will, which if it's dark, (laughs) you know. So for race, I think we'd recommend drow because you want to get some sort of benefit from that umbral sight and your devil sight gives you you know the ability to see in darkness up to 120 feet if you're a drow you have dark vision at 120 but now you have dark vision 150 so you've got another 30 feet of still being able to see in the dark beyond that you'll see the other drow before they see you coming that's right and i think as a as a ranger with a favorite enemy if you're a drow you should be picking drow Mm -hmm. edgy yeah. Also, the fact that you have that sunlight blindness doesn't really matter because, as we'll see, you've got lots of ways to make sure that you're in darkness. Yeah. So the bread and butter spell for you now is going to be darkness. And, of course, you've got that pass without trace. Now, keep in mind, you are charisma dexterity. Uh, you don't have expertise in stealth, but you get a plus 10 from pass without trace. And, oh, yeah, you're often invisible. And, you know, you don't have to go into... Uh heavy armor because you have that shield spell to fall back on i really like shadows of moil and it's difficult to get on a gish that isn't a hex blade but it's one of those abilities that makes it even harder to see you it makes just you heavily obscured which means that it's disadvantaged to attack you um and you're extremely difficult to pinpoint even if you're standing in the middle of broad daylight and anyone who actually does hit you takes some necrotic damage Hunger of Hadar, Maddening Darkness, uh, these also create large areas of magical darkness, which, of course, remember, you can see through, so drop it on other people, they're blinded, you've not got advantage on any attack you make against them, so, I don't know, just Eldritch Blossoms till they're dead. And you'll also have Hold Person and Hold Monster, so you can give yourself huge bonuses to uh, make those attacks land. Pairs nicely with your Eldritch Smite. And your crit on a 19 to 20, pairs nicely with everything. Right. So you'll have high decks, and you'll have Pass Without Trace, and you'll have access to Darkness and Invisibility, which will give you a very high stealth, uh, making you a very, very powerful creeper. Gross. In terms of leveling order, I think you can pretty much go straight in order, just start Ranger and then go into Warlock. Is that probably how you do it? Yeah, I think that's totally fine. Um, If you want to get, I guess, one level of Warlock, so you have a nice Eldritch Blast, that's totally fine. Um, but basically get to extra attack as quickly as you can. So, Ishin, who is your Death Shroud? My Death Shroud is, of course, a drow. Oh, yeah, you told us that up front. Mm-hmm. And she has decided that she wants to, oh, I don't know, escape the evils of her society. Okay. But only because it's kind of a pain. Mm-hmm. Um, she doesn't really like having to look over her shoulder. She's not really looking for, um, you know, absolution. She's just really tired. Uh, so she heads for the surface. The only problem is it's really hard to see on the surface because it's super bright. So to make sure that she's always still very comfortable, just like she was down in the Underdark, she wraps herself in magical darkness. And 
<laughs> make sure that the skills and abilities that she learned deep underground are just as effective here on the surface every single place she goes. In fact, sometimes being shrouded means that she is uh, more obvious. You know, if it's broad daylight and there's uh, like a 15 foot sphere of, uh, of darkness sitting there, you can probably bet that like someone's there. People tend to notice, uh, but she doesn't care because they can't see her. She can still see them. She gains this reputation for being an assassin who stalks in broad daylight, even though she is essentially in the middle of the night. It's more terrifying when they know that you're coming for them. It's how she makes a bit of coin and, you know, feels like she's still close to home. Okay. Right. I can get behind that. What about your Death Shroud? All right. So you know I don't do comic books. Uh, Correct. But I do do video games. Yeah, correct. And there was a video game that came out um, in the mid-90s called Maximum Carnage. I do not know this video game. It was about Spider-Man and Venom fighting Carnage. Oh, I know that video game. Okay. okay. So in that video game, one of the characters, uh, a secondary character who appears on screen, who I have no idea what this character is until they reappeared recently uh, with apparently a TV series coming out, is Cloak of Cloak and Dagger. Ah. Now, what Cloak did in that video game was suddenly cover the entire screen with her cloak. His, his, cloak, his cloak. I don't even know. Uh, with, a, with a black, you know, flurry, blacking out the screen, protecting Spider-Man, and ultimately escaping. Now, everything about this character suddenly enforcing darkness, like being at home in the darkness, like having this sort of swirling mist around them and all these things just made me think of that one moment in the end of the first boss fight of Maximum Carnage. So I'm going with Cloak. Whatever Cloak's background is, I don't even know. Uh, so your Death Shroud is a walking fade to black. Yes. Okay. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> what more could you want? <laughs> We need to leave. Smokescreen. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I got it. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Before we wrap up, we want to take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week, 150 weeks in a row. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. You can also leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And if you do so, we will read your review on the air. This is Consistently Great, five stars by C.A. Buendia. It's usually possible to find a good RPG podcast in a few categories, but this one knocks it out of the park in every category. Voices. This is what really struck me. Ishan and Shane have some of the most pleasing voices in any podcasting, let alone RPG podcasts. While compelling, their voices are smooth and warm enough to be comforting and almost soothing. Delivery. One of the best delivered podcasts I've ever listened to. They never sound like they're reading, but also don't sound like they're just casting about randomly for their thoughts. Content. Great. While much of the podcast focuses on the 5th edition of D&D, much of it is applicable to any RPG. In addition, most recountings of RPG campaigns are boring, like someone describing a dream. But I really enjoy their opening segment that recaps a portion of their campaign. I find myself listening to it even if I'm going to skip the rest of the episode to make sure I don't miss any of the ongoing story. Wait, hang on. Wait a minute. But what about our sultry voices? Sorry, what about our sultry voices? What about our sultry voices? (laughs) Also, because some people will kvetch, I really appreciate their modern take on gaming. They don't hate on anything just for the sake of sounding cool. Well, we, we haven't done the, the Forgotten Realms episode yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
They don't venerate the good old days of gaming, they have best practices for running a modern game for all kinds of players, and they frequently talk about putting your money toward good causes rather than the podcast. They're just all-around good guys. This is a nice review. However, I believe C.A. Buendia does not know us personally. Because <laughs> we, we have totally fooled him. <laughs> yes, we are definitely not good guys. Terrible people. Mm, mm-hmm. Real real shames to be around. You can see for yourself at Gen Con. That's true. <laughs> Uh, but thank you for the kind review. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're continuing our series on playing different alignments, and we are talking about playing neutral evil. And in the character creation forge, we're building Littlefinger. Well, that's it for episode 150 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>